0: There's got to be a way that you need to break that wall down and say, you know, you're the same incredible person and you're the same great cook, or you're the same great server and the great sous chef without having to kill yourself.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Burnt Chef Journal, a hospitality specific podcast dedicated to challenging mental health stigma and conversations designed to inspire a new, healthier, happier and more sustainable hospitality profession. I'm joined this week by an incredible guest who reached out to me from New York to provide me with a copy of his most latest book, Your Table Is Ready. Michael Azelina is a well-experienced hospitality professional who manned the front room of the New York's hottest and most in-demand restaurants, got to serve people like Tennessee Williams and Dustin Hoffman. He's really seen it all from the days of serving shots of whiskey and cleaning out ashtrays for his mobster family members all the way through to owning his new restaurant in Manhattan in, in New York. He's a very interesting chat and we had a great conversation so i hope that you enjoy this week's episode if you haven't checked out his book your table is ready do so we'll link it down in the show notes and this is an interesting conversation i really hope that you guys enjoy this the burnt chef project is proudly sponsored by lamb western a leading provider of innovative high quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably minded farmers and growers, Lamb Western provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges and mash. To find out more, head to lambwestern.eu or search your partner in potatoes. I've been very much looking forward to our conversation. You were very generous and kind enough to send me a a copy of your book before we had this conversation. I'm going to be honest. I am only halfway through, but my God, what a half already it's been. Like, I don't even know where to begin (laughs) with our conversation.
0: So, look, I found you guys. You know, I saw what you guys are doing, and I'm like, well, isn't that about time? It's been... I'm doing this now 30, well, maybe going on 40 years. Let's subtract for the pandemic, which destroyed everything here and most of the world. I'm doing this a long time, and I have gone toe-to-toe with people, front of house, back of house. The anger, the rage, the narcissism, dealing with, look, Restaurant people, we're crazy to a large degree. I say that because you have to be to do what we do. No one really gets it unless you're in the thick of it. And what it takes to put a meal on a table in front of a guest is sometimes insanity, especially when you're dealing in in high-end, fine dining restaurants. So not to take away from a diner, you know. But what people go through, the stress, the hours. And in my career, there's never been any support on any level you were thrown into it and there was when i came of age in the business there was no hr and there was no health insurance and you had people trying to produce something in a very competitive environment and it brought out the best in people and it brought out the worst in people. And I have been with chefs that kicked a server in the nuts, put a guy in the hospital for almost a month. I've had a knife pulled on me. I've seen plates fly from my head. I've reciprocated. I've gone, you know, like I said, toe to toe with people in the back of the house. We wanted to kill each other. Why? Because too many orders were in the kitchen at once, or a plate was sent back, or the crazy customer. The most ridiculous reasons, and you don't know how to diffuse it, and you get to the point where you're at this extreme, and things pop. They just explode. Unless, you know, you're out doing drugs, or you're drinking, anything to alleviate that, and then that cycle starts over again. I'm I'm a little bit rambling here, but I saw what you guys were doing, and my thing was, I would like to get involved in this in some way because it's so necessary and so important to talk about because I don't think it has to be the way it is or has been in terms of the extremes of behavior. You know, good and bad, good and bad. So if that's a jumping off point, that's that's where I jumped in here.
1: And I'm so pleased that you did. So for those who I'm familiar with Michael, and I'll I'll post details on the show notes for this. But Michael very kindly sent me his book, which is called Your Table is Ready, which I think anyone in hospitality has to read this because it speaks volumes. This is the thing about hospitality, right? It doesn't matter what country you're in the chances are there's going to be elements of your journey and your lifetime and your experience that you'll go, yeah, fucking hell, it was like that for a portion or even still is in, in some environments, right?
0: Yeah, I can't imagine it's not the same anywhere in the world. When someone spoke to, I would written about Walking into this restaurant, getting, trying to get a job, and they're, the servers are in the dining room, and they're polishing glasses, and they're setting the table, and the captains have their jackets draped across the chair. And that could be anywhere in the world. you know. We all do that. We all set a dining room. We all get ready. We get prepared. The chef comes out. It, it's a pattern that's repeated every day day, hundreds of thousands of times a day. So we're all in it. I don't care where you live. It's exactly the same. And people are people, you know, we're all humans. And we're there for a reason and restaurants for a reason. For me, it's always been the restaurant has been about the experience that we provide. It's not just about the food and service, but the energy, the you know, people come to restaurants, why? You're not not just to eat. You know, a lot of people do. And here in New York, I have guests that haven't, you know, they have show kitchens that they never turn the gas on. So for them it's absolute sustenance. But most of us go there for date to meet people, to celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, divorces, weddings, whatever, and it's, it's Experience that they're looking for and that we provide. And that experience can sometimes, at our end, be very, very toxic. Yeah. As well as joyful. As well as joyful.
1: It's not all bad. And and this is the reason why we started, which was, uh, you know, we could see that there was there was almost like a really, really, really slow motion train crash about to happen. And, you you know, it's like that scene from Austin Powers where there's, there's that chap in the tunnel and he's going, no, and there's that really small, slow electric vehicle. And it just takes forever to get there. And we could see that coming long before COVID. <laughs> And that's why we started this, because we it's not that we I dislike this industry. In fact I bloody love it. I'm still in it now, getting my hands filthy with our community in order to try and ensure that it's sustainable and that we, we start to question these whys and these ifs and buts of ways that have been working that quite clearly haven't worked. And rather than just set fire to it, it's actually try and create this revolution, a change that that leaves it in a much healthier position than when it was when we left got here. But I'm keen to dig into a little bit about your history because I I am really enjoying your book. I don't know what I was expecting. You talk about hospitality, right? About giving that service and and just that love of hospitality. Your first sort of branch into hospitality was was working effectively with your family, right? And and serving drinks during, was it poker if I remember correctly?
0: yeah, poker. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, in a neighborhood that was mostly Italian-Americans in that neighborhood, you, you did basically three things. You were police, sanitation, or mafia. And people stayed there and was very tribal. And I had a lot of relatives or a number of my relatives were involved with the mob in some way or another. And growing up in an Italian household, Sundays were the day when you know the aunts would come over and they'd cook these big meals. And my uncles and cousins would show up and they'd park their Cadillacs out in the street because that was the car that you had to have. And with their fedoras on and they'd come into the house, sit in the living room. Light up their cigarettes and start playing poker, and I would loved it because that was you know those were my role models. I never really grew up with my father, so these guys were to me the, the greatest things in the world. And I would serve them shots of scotch, and I would clean the ashtrays, and I'd bring food out, and I I loved doing that. That that connection that I got to make with these people by basically what I was doing was serving them, and that you know I, I look at that and I look at also I was an altar boy. So I was raised a Catholic, and as an altar boy, you what do you do? You serve mass. You get to the church, and you put your costume on, or uh, you get dressed for the service, and you take the linens and you dress the altar and you polish the cruets and you set out the oil and the you know, the red wine gets set out. And so you're setting up a dining room is what you're doing and waiting for the people to enter, for your guests to open. So, you know, whatever it's eight o'clock mass, eight o'clock, everybody files in and you've got the whole room set and it begins. And it begins, and then what do you do? You serve communion at the end of it. And so you've prepared this little meal, this sacred, but a sacred meal, you know, not just a steak, something that's been blessed and, the, you know, the body of Christ. And you could, you know, run with that as far as you like. But that was my introduction to the service industry in an odd way. And I realized that later in life that, oh, wow, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> yeah, right. And it, it sort of fit in a way.
1: What was it that bit you from that early age? Because it, yeah, hospitality, especially the service profession, it, it's it gets underneath your skin. And, and for each individual, you know, perhaps it is the fact that you've, you found your calling, or perhaps it is the fact that you, you're with like-minded individuals. But what was it for yourself that you think from from back and clearing those ashtrays and, and serving scotch that really led you during those early days to pursue that through various guises until where you are today?
0: Yeah, honestly, I think it was the connection to people. I think it was always, it's always been about the people for me. My first restaurant job, well, you know, I started off in a a, a candy store in Brooklyn, just sort of a luncheonette. And as a soda jerk, I don't know what you guys would call it, but I was making sodas and ice creams. I became a short order cook. And it was, it was theater, it was a stage, and every two minutes or every minute someone walked in the door and it was a different person wanting different things or needing things and some were chatty, some weren't chatty and, you know, the beautiful girls from the neighborhood would walk in and you get to meet them and, and it was about the people. It was expanding my horizons in, in the world. It opened up a whole different world to me from this little kid that grew up on the street, you know, without a father and, and small and... You know, I was always the runt of of the litter there. It put me almost on equal footing with other people in a weird way. My first restaurant job, I realized that the people that I worked with, we were just a bunch of dysfunctional human beings thrown into this mix with easy access to alcohol and, and food and people. And again, the people coming in. My first restaurant job was in the theater district and you would get these, you know, actors would come in, famous people would walk through the door and I'm like, wow, this is pretty incredible and this is a lot of fun. Unbelievably stressful because you're, you know, you're putting out a lot of meals, a lot of food in a short amount of time, especially in a theater restaurant, but we would have that a break. because So the door opens at 5 o'clock or 5.30 and everyone sits down pretty much at the same time because they're heading out to an 8 o'clock curtain. So you're, all of a sudden you have 100 people in the dining room that needs to be fed immediately. And what that takes to do that is crazy. And it's stressful because you got to get them out. The food's got to go down. The kitchen's stressed. You're stressed. And then suddenly they leave and the restaurant's empty. And everybody there, kitchen, front of house, you're on this high that now what do I do? Now do I do? And most of us started to drink. And drinks led then eventually led to drugs. And it was the kitchen. It was the front of the house. And that's how we would get through the night. And it's this repetition. And I'm not saying everyone did it, but... In my experience, most did. You were rare if you weren't part of that because you needed it. And I think we all had this this basic dysfunction. And whatever it is in any individual's life, what leads them to a restaurant job, or to drinking too much, or to drugging too much, or that you know, when the anger boils up and the release of that anger, how you get rid of it. We find each other, you know? We find each other. And we've come from disparate backgrounds. We always had the same need there. I think the need to be seen and then the need to commune with people. And what are we doing in the restaurant business? We're servants, you know? We're the case that does what most people don't want to do or can't do or, or reach out to find some way to commune to do, and we do it. You know, I never met many, many rich kids serving tables or working in the kitchen and being line cooks. It's you're from a certain environment and a certain background and you're thrown into this. And from my background and comparing it to what you do, no one ever talked about your mental health or no one ever talked about why is this guy so angry or why is she so angry and why is this person doing all these drugs and drinking so much you just did it you didn't know there was no explanation for it and this could at times lead to a very toxic environment and it snowballs it's front of house it's back of house it's families i got a beautiful letter from a woman who read my book she wrote me and she said I'm folding laundry and I'm crying. I've just finished your book. My husband's a chef and it's the holiday season and I have two kids. He says, I'm basically a single mother. I haven't seen him in two weeks, you know, and I'm buying presents for the kids and I'm, I'm cleaning, I'm doing this and people really don't understand the effect of what a restaurant schedule and environment can do to a family and how it snowballs, you know, and then how do you deal with it, you know? What what do you do a, as a chef who's putting in 15, 16 hours a day and you've got two kids at home and your sous chef doesn't show up and you, you're running now 7, 14, sometimes 21 days in a row because someone has to do it. Who do you rely on? Well, okay, so you're going in there and killing yourself and getting really stressed out, but you've got a whole family at home you know, and who's taking care of them and and how are they dealing with it? And how do you even deal with it? You know, I don't know, but I think it's areas that need to be addressed and there's got to be a way to figure out a balance. And I'm not, you know, I'm about to open a restaurant and I think about this all the time. You know, what are the schedules going to be? And, you know, the gentleman who's going to be my chef, he's working right now. He just did 18 days in a row. Because one sous chef went on vacation and one got sick. So who's doing it? He, he was there. He said, you can't do this. But he said, what am I supposed to do? I have to do it. You don't close. You can't close the restaurant because those who can close a restaurant for two or three days, well, you're going out of business, you know, because you're not going to pay, pay the pur- be able to pay the purveyors. So mm-hmm. my introduction to this world, I'll go back to your, your original question, and I might be rambling here, was that I found it so addictive and so incredible to be able to commune with people on so many different levels. And then once you're in there, you realize, well, it's not the McDonald's you know, commercial where you know the kids drive up and everybody gets out of the car and there's presents, you have a hamburger and you go home. That's not what the life is. But in a way, a good restaurant, when it's running well and people are there and they're happy and they're drinking and they're toasting, it is the McDonald's commercial. You know, it is this fantasy that... A lot of us want, and a lot of us didn't have that as children that I work with. And you know, I make, might be making a gross exaggeration, but I've seen this repeated over and over and over. And so, restaurants at their best provide that basic human need, which is connection. When the restaurants closed during COVID, especially here in New York City, people were devastated. You know, besides being locked in and quarantined, you had nowhere to go. You didn't have your local bar to go get a drink. You lost a huge social connection, and that's what restaurants provide. So now, I think now that we're in 2023, and realize what life is like without restaurants, and realize that when restaurants reopened, and we couldn't hire anyone back, because everyone decided, I haven't worked in two years, and I don't want that shitty job. I don't want to work 15, 16 hours a day, sometimes for minimum wage. And... There's something else out there, you know, because I've been with my family. I've been with my friends. So how now do we make this, you know, how do we bring this together so it's an industry that can pay people well and give them a life? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure that out. I think a lot of us (laughs) are trying to figure that out. But what is important is to understand that restaurants and restaurant people provide a basic human need. We're the town halls, where the, the, the you know the the piazzas, we're the place where people go to congregate to talk, to meet, to have to discuss business, to discuss love, all of it. And our life without restaurants is not a full life. I think the pandemic really made us realize that. We all need it. We all need it. Those who work in them and those who go to them. And it's a two-way street. And but so when it's working it's magnificent it's wonderful and you know the the chef just served a great meal and the customer please will the chef come out and say hi and congratulations you guys did such a great job and it's wonderful but what does it take to get there i think that's what your organization is reckoning with right now and it's really important
1: and there is no as you'll know having worked in many different Businesses and different styles of hospitality business and manage different types of teams and individuals. There's no one-size-fits-all for any questions that relate to this. There are some constants. We know that there are you know, there's time and demand pressures and that we do feel like we are out of control, you know, especially if you get walk-ins, especially high-profile clients. But, you know, even if you just get a table of 20 that have suddenly appeared out of the blue with no warning, (laughs) you're right, you are like a caged animal. You have to get the job done in order to be able to, to get out. So there are some constants, but what have you found as for the many different roles that you've had within hospitality, what have you found that's been some of the intrinsically motivating shifts that you found? What is it that people really want in order to get as close to a balance without having to start looking at operating hours and and various other bits and bobs?
0: So it's interesting because I've been thinking about, you know, talking to you about this and the kitchen mostly more than the front of house has, has been a very, very macho culture. You know, it was mano a mano. And when I started, there were very few women working in kitchens. And that's increased exponentially. And thank God, you know, it's really lent a balance there. But even with the, it's men or women, there's a mentality in the kitchen that we can do this, you know. I could do 15 hours and 16 hours. And I, I could get it. I'm going to power through this. But Like my chef who just worked 20, almost 14 days in a row. You know, what I'm going to do is going to get it done, and there's got to be a way that you need to break that wall down and saying, you know, you're the same incredible person, and you're the same great cook, you're the same great server, and the great sous chef without having to kill yourself. There's nothing to prove there. The only thing that you're proving is making that person, that those people that walk in the door, making them happy. Because that's why we do this, right? We want to make people happy. This is the only. We don't. We don't open the door. You get. I'll go on a little tangent here, but you get a customer that walks in the restaurant, and this person's unhappy. Walked in the door, they're unhappy. They had a shitty day at work, and maybe they lost a lot of money on the stock market. And they sit down with a chip on their shoulder. And they come in, and then they start. They start. They're mean to the waiter. They're mean to this person. They're mean to that person. And you're like, whoa, there's two things we can do here. We can throw this person out, or we can try and turn them around. And sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But when you reach that edge, when you reach that edge, who who talks you off the ledge? Is it the guest that you're with? Is it your server who's really good at this and get you the drink you need. So it's the same for, for us working there. When we reach that edge, how do we come down? You know, who's going to come in and say, "Hey, you know, calm down, buddy. It's okay. We got this. Go outside, take 10 minutes. I'll pick up your station. Oh, you're picking up the chicken and the fish and this and that. I got you covered. I'll do that for you. And you know what? Take the day off tomorrow because you really need it. And you'll come back the day the next day and you'll be a better person for it. So, do we find ways to, to have, how to mitigate this? Do we overstaff? And if we're overstaffing, are we paying, you know, where does that money come from? How much are we going to charge for that steak? Because it's, it's finite. You can't charge hundred seventy-five dollars for steak because you need to have backups and people to cover the people when they're sick or mentally can't handle it and need that break. It's, it's a weird balance there. And what I will say, and the restaurants I've worked in, they made a lot of money. A lot of money. Keith McNally, who's a, an amazing restaurateur, has a restaurant called Balthazar. And people who find him has an Instagram and he goes goes crazy. But I think he, he wrote on one Instagram that he'd made twenty eight million dollars on like in a in a short amount of time. And I'm thinking, that's amazing. You know, good for you. But you know what? Your line cooks are still making minimum wage. And your chefs, the sous chefs are still working fourteen to sixteen hours a day. So can you take four million of that? And balance it down and maybe add a neck of the line cook and add another chef and jack up the salary, maybe, you know, another $3 an hour to do that. So there are ways, you know, we got to figure it out, but it's got to come from the top. And it can't be based on, I mean, you got to make money, you know, and I begrudge no one making money. But there's got to be some sort of fairness in the system where the people at the bottom, or, or even at the top, like a chef, but I the about like the cooks, where they can get a day off. You know, for years in New York City restaurants, the cooks were making minimum wage to 2 or $3 above it. And to a man or to a woman, every cook that I've ever worked with, not only did they work doubles most of the week, they got a second job to work the weekends and pick up a brunch shift because they couldn't make ends meet. And these are talented people that are cooking your $150 tomahawk perfectly and slicing it perfectly and they're making fifteen or sixteen dollars an hour and they can't get enough food on their table for their family on the salary they're making and they're working seven days a week and I've seen this happen across the board. Now does it have to happen? I don't think so. Do you need that $28 million? I don't think so. So you know, but people have to speak up. And again I'll go back to the pandemic because the cooks and the busboys and women realize that I ain't doing this shit, man, for this kind of money. I'm just not going to do it. What's happened in, in, in New York City is that, and I see this every single day. I've worked a number of restaurants, and I'm close with a lot of people. All my bussers, right, left the restaurant business, and what they start doing? Delivery. And they're in their bicycles, and I see them out there. And I say, yo, what's going on, man? What are you doing? He says, you hey, know, I'm opening a restaurant. You come back? He says, nah, uh-uh. I'm my own boss, I make my own hours, I'm making decent money, I can work as long as I want, I can take as many days off as I want, and I'm making a few bucks more, why would I go back and work in your kitchen or on your floor? And they're right, I cannot blame them, you know? So how much can you pay people? How much profit do you need? I think in restaurants that make money, we can figure it out, you know? We can give people a life. And we can, you know, that person just about to explode, we can give them the next day off tomorrow and say, just take the day off, go hang out with your girl, or your boyfriend, or your wife, or whatever, or just go off on your own and walk in the woods or something, you know? But it's necessary. And for our business to survive and to move on to the next level, we've got to figure out how to do that. And, you know, it, and so my great experiment, I'm going to open in two months, is how am I going to do it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't have people going to walk in my car. I don't know what my profits are going to be. You know, the profit margins in in restaurants are really, really small. How do I do it? But I'm committed to making sure that my people have a life and that they are not killing themselves, you know, to put my stakes on the table. We'll see. I might go out of business. I might succeed. I'm not sure, but we'll see. Or... It might be business as usual. I don't know. But I think we all, as restaurateurs and people working, we need to, to, to draw the line and say, where do we take this now? And it's got to start, you know, it starts with one person, individuals. And like a group like you have now, we can talk about it and say, so what did you do? You know, did, do you have an extra person on staff? Did you give them a few extra dollars? What did you do to make it work? Or is it not working? What's failing? Let's get this dialogue going. Let's see where where we can take it and make it so that this woman who's folding the the kids' clothes and crying in the laundry room because she hasn't seen her her husband in two weeks, it shouldn't have to be that way. It really shouldn't.
1: Christ, Michael, where do I begin? (laughs) I mean, so... Here's a couple of questions for you, because I, I get you. I feel you. And these are questions that we, we have time and time again. And we don't claim to know and have all the answers. Interestingly enough, a lot of you guys already have the answers. You just need the conversation facilitated, which is what we're here to do. We're trying, here to help with that. So,
0: Interesting. Yeah, yeah.
1: Restaurants don't make lots of money, right? They're, the profit margins are slim. Where are those profit margins going?
0: Well, a lot of restaurants make a lot of money. So let's, you know, let's really be clear about that. I've worked in restaurants where, you know, the owners have had five homes and, you know, different cars and, you know, spend six months of the year not in their restaurant. So they do. Then there's uh, there's also restaurants. There's a restaurant in New York City called Prune that was there for a long time. A woman started it, a woman chef, and she had to close during the pandemic. And she wrote a beautiful piece in the New York Times and saying over the past... 20, 25 years, for how long it was in business, how hard it was to open that door every day. It was a small restaurant. They didn't have a lot of tables. And they just made it, you know, every day. They weren't, you know, she didn't have five different houses in different states and countries. And so you have a section of the restaurant business that is that, that they're doing it for, for the love. And it people do this for love, you know, the love of what they do. It's addicting and it, it but it does give you back because you're really creating something it's, it's your art in a way so how do those restaurants make it i don't know how much can you charge you know how did you do you sit down on opening day and say okay my line cook that was making 15 dollars an hour she needs 25 dollars an hour to make a living and not have to work seven days a week so how do we do that and then you it's all economics now How many seats do you have? So does this mean the end of 10 table restaurants or 15 table restaurants? And they're all this, you know, these, these huge places. What I'm finding in New York and sadly is that restaurants are now all owned by groups. People who are coming in and owning four, five, six restaurants and They've got the money to do that, and they've got the capital to do that, and they're creating this place here, and we're that there, and they, you know, they've got four or five million dollars to put into the restaurant. And what happens to me, for, what, for me, when these groups happen, is the further you get away from the owner, the further you get away from the person whose vision was in that restaurant, whose blood and passion was in that restaurant, the less interesting I find that restaurant, the less I want to go to it, because I don't get to see the person that created it. I, I'll see a manager you know, and some really cool servers and good people, but it's their job and they're coming in and they don't have in their heart, the person who created it. So when it's two, three, four, and five restaurants down the road, well, now you're just making these factories and some are very successful. So I I might be, you know, the lone wolf howling out there about places like this, but I love the smaller restaurants and 10 or 15 tables because I know the owners there and I know the chefs there and they're really producing this. Now, how do we make them viable? How do you make these five, six group restaurants interesting you know, and compelling to go to other than just the food because that could be food anywhere? How do you do it and what's the economic model and how does it work? So if you could open four or five restaurants, you can pay your cook another $5 an hour. I know you can. I know you can. Just think smarter and don't, you know, cut back here and cut back there maybe on your design and don't worry about making so much effing money. You know, there's I think there's enough out there to go around.
1: If you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, wellbeing journals, plus a whole host more available on worldwide dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free to access e-learning content, as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health. I think we need to, in our experience, and I'm not claiming to be the oracle here, but in our experience, we are asking the wrong questions. The questions that keep coming up is, how much do we need to pay people in order to keep them? Yet, within that same sentence is, how much time can we give them off to be able to deal with their family bits and to be able to have a normal life, a normal life when you compare it to any other sector? And what we are seeing time and time again is that you can throw money at a problem and we've seen it over here in the UK. You know, we've, we've the head chef's salary that used to be for £30,000 a year is now going for fifty five pounds £60,000 a year. But the applications are still not coming through and people are still not staying within those roles because for £60,000 a year, you're now expected to do an additional 15 to 20 hours a week and it's not fix the problem, which means to say that us, I believe that everyone within hospitality should, should get paid for a fair wage for their craft. You know, it's, it's a, as you say, if you can cook a tomahawk to perfection time and time again, manage multiple different things, whether you're front house, back house, operations, housekeeping, then you should be paid a relative salary. But I think we are not listening to our teams accurately and I don't think that we are not looking at where the money is going why are we losing money within operations why are businesses who are making five million pound a year profit not making 15 million pound a year and I think if we can change the questions and just be a little bit more receptive to what people are telling us, then we are able to make those changes. So I'll give you a little bit of food for thought on that. So, in fact, Michael, can you tell me, in your experience, what is the average turnover rate in any of the organizations you've worked for, hospitality specific?
0: It depends on the restaurant, and it depends on the position. I worked at a restaurant called Raoul's. It's been there going on 50 years now. It's sort of an institution Not a big restaurant, small, but did very well. It had very, very little turnover. Some cooks that I worked with 20 years ago are still there because they found a way to make the people happy that work there and give them a living wage. And the servers never left because they made a fortune and they're they're still there. So it had very little turnover. Turn that around with a restaurant like Le Cuckoo, which was voted the number one restaurant in America, and we lost people constantly. You had your cooks there for a while because they're in this high profile restaurant making some great food and learning, but then they left. They wanted to move on, go somewhere else. And, you know, whether for growth or for more money, dishwashers you couldn't keep because they weren't paid enough. People who polished the glasses, polishers, weren't paid enough. They left. The turnover there was great. So you have the small restaurant making a profit and people stayed. And I think the predominant reason was because they were respected and treated well, and given time off when they, you know, when they did. But they worked hard. Everyone worked hard to this larger restaurant that is so famous and so amazing and very, very difficult to keep people. Front of house people stayed long, are still there. Some are, most have left, because the money is very good. But the kitchen turnover is huge, is huge. So and I think, again, the pandemic was a great equalizer. People don't want to do it. They don't want to do it.
1: The pandemic gave everyone an opportunity to, over here in the UK, we had fantastic weather, you know, it was the one of the hottest summers we would ever had. And one of the big recurring things when we were hosting our weekly check-ins, not just in this country, but across the globe, where I've just sat outside and heard birds for the first time who even thought nature existed because we're so institutionalized into these worlds whereby you've got so many different stimulants but none of them are natural you've got your customers you've got your fans your light your tills your ticket machine you've got the plates and the pots and the pans and the coffee machine going you've got all these things but actually people for the first time went oh my god i've just connected with what it is to be human so there's an element of an increased level of turnover as a result of that, because people have suddenly gone, I love my craft, I love my skill, I love my profession, I love the industry. But is it worth sacrificing being a human being over? And as a result, we saw an exacerbation. We saw that increase in turnover. But when we look at turnover rates, uh, both in here and, the, and America, we see an average turnover of about 125%. And in some of the businesses, Ouch. that's an average. And some businesses we've worked with, they're 400%. Some businesses are targeted, so their management teams are targeted at 135%, which means, and to put this into real layman's terms, you're at somewhere like a you have to get rid of all of your 100 employees plus an additional 35 within a one-year period. That's your target. And that's not done out of malicious intent. That's done because it's actually lower than the 178% or whatever it was before. So naturally within hospitality, we tend to have a a high turnover. And as you very correctly said, in the smaller business, the family-run business, where people have stayed for a long time, they've managed to pay the people the right Money, But ultimately, it's because they feel valued, they have that time off. And when we start to look at the reasons why hospitality has a higher failure rate than other sectors, and why it has uh, such a high turnover rate, is it's that chicken and egg scenario. It's that we can't afford to pay people more, because what we're actually doing is watching people walk out the door, and each person might be anywhere between two and a half to $5,000 in terms of payroll, insurance, wastage, uniform, training, HR. We are effectively, because we are not addressing culture and value and listening to our workforce and our employees and the people that make this industry great, we are just watching. Effectively, people walk out the door with four or $5,000 in their pocket. They're not benefiting from it because they're now being injured and they're having to find another job. They're not making that monetary value. But business owners are literally leaking their profits because they are not asking the questions, providing that safety of space for their employees to go, do you know what, I would love to have a day off. And if you can't give that to me in the current incarnation, what space can you provide me to work together to come up with the solutions? You know, that's the important thing in the situation that you have there. You know, the one that you mentioned where a chef had been on for, you say, 14 days?
0: Yeah, might've been longer than that, but definitely 14 in a row.
1: Okay. Yeah, these are unsustainable. As human beings, we are not designed or built to run at those. I don't care. There's going to be individuals in the industry and I still meet them today who go, oh, you're fine. You just think yourself through it or, you know, you're, you're either built for it or you're not. Naturally, they're going to be more resilient individuals, in the same way you'll find them in the military. Than you know, but we're not in the military; we're not at war. <laughs> the only people who we're at war with is ourselves at this moment in time. So, in this situation, let's challenge the status quo. Why can't we shut the business? Why can't we look at you know the least profitable days? And I'll give you a, here we go. Here's a here's a story. Two weeks ago, I was doing a a produce show down in the south of England. And some chap came up to me and he said, hi, Chris, we've met before. And I said, yes, I remember. I said, we've met about half a year ago. He said, yeah, that's right. And I said, you came to me and you said to me, you couldn't keep hold of your team. They were turning over. Morale was low. Motivation was poor. And he said, yeah, that's right. I said, how is it now? He said, it's much better. I said, good. What was it about that conversation It might have been nothing, but something has changed since then. What was it? He said, well, Chris, you asked me a simple question. You asked me first and foremost, what days I made the most money. As a business, what were our most profitable days? And I could tell you it was Sunday. Our Sunday roast trade was massive. You know, perhaps Fridays and Saturdays were were equally just as good. But ultimately, those were our busiest days. But the key question that I asked him was, what days are you losing money? Are you not making absolutely anything? And we're always so focused on how much money, how many covers we're doing, what are the busiest days, that he never stopped to look and really pay attention to the days where there was just no point in being open. Now that's all very well and good. You can establish that perhaps there's going to be natural ebbs and flows in all businesses. Some businesses can be open seven days a week. Some businesses can be open 24 hours a day. Does that mean it has to be done? No, because you... Ultimately, unless you have the right resources to be able to cope with the demand, you're not going to have a happy and healthy workforce. And as a result, you're going to increase your turnover rate. So he went back to the business. He established that Mondays and Tuesdays for his business, were well, there was no point in being open. But then the next thing we have in hospitality, which is the psychological element, which is, okay, I get that we're shut on Monday and Tuesdays, but if I shut the door now, those customers... And never going to come back. I'm not going to get those anymore because they're going to be shut. But here's another paradigm shift. If you go to we- eat at one of your favorite restaurants and you phone up and say, hey, I'd like to book a table for Monday and they say, I'm sorry, we're shut. Do you go, well, that's atrocious. I am never booking there again. I will refuse to book there. Or do you go, okay, fair enough. And you pick up the phone and you phone the next restaurant and say, hey, do you want? Uh, can I come for something to eat? And so what he actually found was by shutting on a Monday and Tuesday and starting to address that psychology of we're going to lose our customers if we don't stay open all the time. He found that Wednesdays he had people queuing out the door. Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays was slightly busier than they have been. But most importantly, those two days off that he had for his entire team all at the same time meant that morale lifted culture and uh, tox- the underlying toxicity of passive aggressiveness and, or even open aggressiveness has started to diminish and people are actually then starting to be prepared, prepared to come into work fresher, perhaps earlier on some days to help with things like deep clean. And within a very short period of time, the business had changed because the point of it was, was that you don't need to be always open 24 hours a day. We've slipped into this trap. And if your business does need to be open 24 hours a day, doing 120% capacity on 80% resource, guess what? It's probably not a viable business. You need to change the way that you're operating. You know, if you went to a business manager, a bank manager, and said, here's my idea, I'm going to open a Mackie D's franchise. And it's going to cost me $160,000, and I'm going to staff it with one person a day, but I'm going to try and aim to get at least 100 customers through a day. The business manager will turn around to you and go, No, <laughs> I'm not lending you money. It's not going to work. Yet we expect for our businesses to continue to operate in that manner. I mean, yes, that's an exaggerated example, but we expect for our businesses to operate in that manner. Would you start a business like that now on those principles?
0: So glad you said this. Many of my friends are in the business and they're very successful, not owners, but general managers and chefs. And I had breakfast the other morning with a very world-renowned chef and a general manager of one of the bigger restaurants in the city. And we're talking about opening my restaurant. And we started talking about hours. And I'm starting, I'm gonna open dinner first, then brunch, then lunch, then like do breakfast next year. And he said, What are your hours? And I said, I'll probably i I'm starting from five to eleven. And then weekends will be five to twelve. Bars stay open a little bit later. And we started talking about the numbers. And he has a huge, he runs a Utah six restaurant. Both of them do. And they both said to me, you know, we're all in at nine forty-five these days in New York City. We're in don't open till eleven. Open till ten. Go five to ten. Save that hour. You've got one shift. You don't have to pay. people extend the hours. You're not paying overtime for both front of house and back of house. And see what happens. If people start calling and why aren't you open till eleven? Then you extend it. So I think I'm going to do that. They also suggested that don't open seven days a week. Don't do it because you don't know what it's going to be. Now I have investors that want their money back. i like to pay everybody, but you know I'm running, doing the numbers and thinking about it, and I'm probably going to close one or two days a week to start. And just go on five days where I have one crew that's coming in. I don't have to worry about overtime and doubles and all of that. And do exactly what you told this chap and what he did to make his restaurant successful. And so, has the dialogue changed? It has. Just from what you've just said and the conversation I had last week with the restaurateurs that know what they're doing. They're successful. And that's where I'm going to start. And we're going to go and then we'll build from there. And then maybe I'll find people need extra days. they will do the, you know, the Sunday, Monday or, or Monday, Tuesday. But it looks like that's what I'm going to do. And it'll be much easier on everyone. We're not going seven days, you know, 15 hour days from the get go, but easing into it. If I can afford it, I think I can. Because obviously you're not paying people on the days you don't have the business. And then if I see there's a demand, I'll open. I'll extend it. But so we're starting that way, and we'll see where it goes.
1: And it sounds like a fantastic, fantastic start. And this is where the complications well, you of know, the, you know, but before like...
0: this, people would say, you're crazy. You
1: can't <laughs> yeah. do that.
0: You have to stay open these hours. It has to be seven days a week. What are you going to do to the people that, that, that show up on Monday and you're closed? What are you going to tell them? Well, what you just said, maybe they'll be there on Wednesday. I hope so. And if they it doesn't will work, be. I'll open seven days regularly. I'm able to turn it around you know I could change if I have to
1: and the thing is is again we've become a little bit so I used to uh full disclosure I wasn't always in hospitality I was actually one of these guys who you know I was I came out of school with relatively good grades I've always worked in sales and marketing so I've always had a decent you know decent sum of money coming in I don't get paid as, as much as chefs some chefs do now certainly but I you know I've done well for myself But I always chose to have a career in hospitality, you know, on on the side, because it was fun. I enjoyed it. Like I, I got paid to do something that I loved, you know. One of my previous lives, I was a business consultant. So I used to help startups in the travel industry. What I used to have to do is speak to people who came to me with a business plan and they would say, Chris, I want to start this business. I want to take people to the Caribbean on a flight and I want to do it as cheap as possible and I want to do it for as many people as possible and I would say to them why well because Thomas Cook or Virgin or British Airways or whoever they do it so I can do it but why what makes you different what's your USP why should people come to you where you can't compete on economy of scale and price versus someone else versus someone else who's already established with a much bigger marketing budget. And so the point of this is, is that we need to create, not just for our customers, but also to be employers of choice. We need to create that USP. What makes you different? What makes you that place where you are an employer of choice, where people go, I need to go and work down the road, because they are shut two days every single week. But more than that, we all sit down and have a nice breakfast together beforehand and that's provided and it does not come out of my pocket and it's healthy and nutritious and actually we sit down and we have regular one-to-one reviews that are structured and safe you know over here I take I take the mickey because businesses large organizations over here they've taken performance reviews and they've turned them into coffee and chats and I said why did you turn performance reviews into coffees and chats they were like well because performance reviews were really negative negative." I said, okay, so how are coffee and chats going? They're like, yeah, they're really negative. I was like, you could call it a bubbly wobbly if you want. It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> if, you, if you're going in with the intention that you're going to basically try and be as negative as possible, or you're not going to give that individual or employee an opportunity to say what they really feel and think, and to manage that in a safe safe way, it doesn't matter what you fucking call it. It's not the name of the thing, process. So it's about building this. Make your organization, make your offering to your customer unique, whether that is the regular same face every single day of a server who's happy and smiley and who greets you and who says, don't worry, sir, I've already ordered your drink for you because I know what you want. I hope that's okay. And because they've been there long enough, whether it's, you know, sustainability policies, whether it is, you know, how your food looks on Instagram or how it tastes. or But in order to be able to have that USP for the customer, you need to have a consistent, strong and well-trained workforce. And that consistency is key. If you can get that right and if you can keep hold of people, then the customers will come, the money will be made. And ultimately, you can then reinvest that back into new things. Again, another example over here. Over here, obviously, we've got the NH- NHS service. NHS services—it's you know, under a tremendous amount of pressure, but the NHS service exists. And one of the other things we have is statutory sick pay. So, if someone needs to take time off work, you can get paid by the business, paid by the government, and the business pays like it's pittance. It's sixty to eighty pounds a week. It's—it's it's nothing. And I say to people, why don't you pay your staff sick pay? Why don't you pay them full, full pay for being off? And they said, no, why would I? I said, if I pay people sick pay, then they'll always be off sick. And I was like, can you see what's inherently wrong with this? If we can't provide people with the bare basics that other industries, you know, go above and beyond for, private medical insurance, a whole host of other things, if we can't entrust adults to come to work, And to do the job and to do it with authenticity and transparency and and a a reasonable understanding between the employer and employee, you're just breeding discontent and you're creating, you're exacerbating this constant turnover. So to be different, you know, take influences and and ideas from other sectors and and be prepared to make mistakes and, and listen to the feedback that comes from that. That's not the key, but it's definitely a big component.
0: Absolutely, touche. I'm in 100% agreement. It's terrifying to think that you can do it and not lose money, and that the people will show up, you know, and they won't take it off and grab the sick pay. As an owner, you're taking a leap there, a leap of faith. You got to try something because what's happening now is it's it's not working. And you're talking about the turnover rate at 125%. You know, what does it cost you to retrain someone? You know, that could have been a year of sick pay (laughs) for someone if you look at it that way.
1: Well, I mean, that that's one issue. I mean, the reason why we do what we do is because one of our early studies that, that has been clinically backed by additional data now is that on an average, over here, one in four people will experience a mental illness during their lifetime. In hospitality, it's four out of five uh, people that we've spoken to out of quite a large data set have experienced a mental illness. And then that's been further backed by clinical studies that we've done on organisations with organisational psychologists that show actually a big proportion, at least half of our workforce at work present but not well enough to be at work and performing at their best, and, and that is the reality that we we have here. So I think we need to be a little less concerned about whether or not people are going to take the piss or to use and abuse the things that we put in front of them. And we need to empower individuals to actually go, this is here for you. You are unlikely to find this in other parts of the sector at this current moment in time. People will follow suit, but this is unique. Here's how it works. If you abuse the system, we won't be able to employ you. We entrust you to use it. You're an adult and allow people to make that decision for themselves because yes, you know, They perhaps have come out from an environment where they are, using quotes here, used to working 14, 15-hour days, and that might seem the norm. But when they come into an environment that provides them with a work-life balance, that allows them time off when they are sick, that pays them when they are sick, that gives them a decent value and a sense of purpose within the workplace, that trains them effectively to be able to deal with some of the more challenging elements, such as the high-pressure demands or conflicts, and also gives them a fair wage. Why would you ever leave your career? Why would you ever leave that place? Why? And it's just being bold enough. I often joke that the Burnt Chef project should have been just called, well, that's just the way hospitality is. Because that's, a, that's what we always <laughs> hear, right? It's just hospitality. What do you expect? You know, the, the life of drugs and drink and, and long hours and, you know, one performance review every four years. That's just hospitality. But Why? Why does it need to be? Why can't we be different?
0: It, it absolutely doesn't.
1: Listen, it's all—it's okay in theory. We have seen it work. In fact, we've seen it work with, with success, but each organization is different. And it's understanding what will work for your business model. Not so much for the customers because the customers, it's like with an artist or a chef who's plating, you might change that dish 15 times. You might put a little bit more paint onto that canvas. But the customer has never seen the final result before. They don't know all of these incarnations that it's gone through in order to be get there. And to be honest with you, they don't really care. What they care about is the end result. So don't build the business based around specifically what you think the customer needs. Provide them with a great offering. And the rest will fall into place because they won't ever think, well, they should have been open seven days a week. That's just, it's unsustainable. It doesn't work. That was my little soapbox moment. Sorry, I get a bit carried away. <laughs> I get a bit passionate about it. So,
0: Absolutely dead on. Dead on.
1: I was going to say, when are you open? When's the restaurant open?
0: April. April 1st, April 15th, depending on... We have a lot of regulations here in New York City. So I have to get inspections from a dozen different apartments before I can open. So we're at that point now where... Almost hooking everything up and waiting for inspections and final approvals and all of that
1: nice, and how many covers are you looking at
0: somewhere sometime in April sometime in April It's been a long slog,
1: yeah, I bet right, especially post pandemic as well like it's there's a lot of different things going on. I don't know what your supply chain is like over over in America, but we had issues at sort of middle part of last year
0: yeah i mean I was delayed almost nine months waiting for these a c heating units to come in and they were you know, due in three months, and then six months later, no one knew if they were in Japan, if they were crossing the Atlantic, or here in Long Island City. So that took a year to get that going. But I think that's ended now. Things are pretty readily available.
1: What's the concept? Because you've worked in some fantastic places. Like, What's the final concept that you, you're embodying and that you're making your own and, and turning out to the world?
0: I'm going back to basics. If you think, what is your basic Restaurant. What is the mother sauce of restaurants? To me, it's always been a bistro. Very, very simple, delicious food, not going crazy. And bistro is French originally. And what's an American bistro? And, you know, it's a contradictory term in American bistro because you have American, you have a French word, bistro. It doesn't make any sense to me. Also, what's American? You're not going to hop on a a plane from London and fly to New York and say, I'm going to eat American food. What is it? People fly to New York for for Chinese, for Italian, for French, for all of this. So I want to create something that's distinctly New York, distinctly local, and American, for whatever that means. So, if a bistro is someone from Alsace who has his mother's recipes in his back pocket or her recipes in the back pocket, takes the train to Paris, opens up a restaurant, you know, that's the original bistro. So, what is it for New York specifically? And for me, it were these bars and grills that dotted my neighborhood. And it was a guy and his wife, or a couple of guys, or a couple of women that would open up a bar and grill. And it was a well-stocked bar. They had a grill in the back and the sign out front said steaks, chops, and seafood. And I've had some of my best meals in bars and grills. So I'm creating a modern take on the traditional bar and grill, which is steaks, chops, and seafood. Simple, delicious food that you can come in three nights a week if you want. Get something light enough, get something rich enough, but back to the basics. The steaks, the chops and the seafood in a very sexy environment, well presented, served in a friendly, fun atmosphere and giving you what I think what people want. No pretension, just a simple steak, you know? A simple poached pizza fish with, you know, some sauces, a great french fry, a great burger, you know, a great tomahawk, a duck for two, things like that. But nothing, I'm not looking to reinvent the wheel. I'm looking to recreate what I know as simple comfort food, and it does not exist anymore. I'm in the West Village of Manhattan, and there's nothing like it around at all. So I'm hoping that people will feel the same way that I do about coming in and eating a meal. And I'll go back to what I said earlier, to, for birthday, anniversary, for a date, to celebrate, and do it in a place where there's no pretensions, and you can come in, be who you are, have a great meal, have a great time, and go home. So that's the goal. It's a modern bar and grill.
1: I like the sound. Of it. Straight For me, that is my go-to. If it has meat, fish, yeah, <laughs> banging sauces, like, it needs to have incredible – like give me a pint of jus and I will quite happily drink that and then come back for more and some decent, you know, decent carbs, decent potato fries or something to go with it like well there.
0: Exactly. You know, when I was a kid, I would go – this guy who turned out to be a mafia don, I didn't know that, but would take me to this bar and grill around the corner and sit me up on the bar, and I was six or seven years old, and I got a pot roast sandwich, and I remember that pot roast sandwich like it was yesterday. I could smell it coming out on a crispy piece of bread, the meat melted in your mouth with a jus that was, I don't know what it was made from, but I salivate thinking of it again. So I'm going to serve that pot roast sandwich. It's primal, it's basic. It's delicious. You know, what's a, it's a French dip, basically, right? But it's the American version of it, and it's going to be that comfort food, you know, simple and delicious. And I want to evoke those, you know, the senses, the smell, the taste, the look of it, and get that back to basics, you know, what I grew up with. And hopefully people will, will relate to that.
1: Are you going to be introducing soda servers and communion as well as part of that? <laughs> or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> only on only on Sunday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> instead of instead of a cup of wine it 's going to be a cup of you like
0: <laughs> there 's a church around the block. a few priests will come in i 'm sure <laughs> we 'll take care of them <laughs> we 'll take care of them yeah, that 's the idea that 's the idea and we 're working hard to get it so we 'll see
1: listen, you have a wealth of experience and you 're obviously a very dedicated hospitality professional i 've got no doubt it'll be a success but yeah hopefully today there's been a few food for thought bits yeah good
0: conversation man great conversation and yeah interesting stuff yeah you open my eyes to things that I think I knew in terms of like time off and all of that but in practice can it work and it does work so we'll see we'll see I'm gonna try and make it work
1: yeah I think the key thing that we see time and time again is ask If you've got a team already, fantastic, ask them. If you haven't, go into one of the restaurants you're you're familiar with and and get on well with and ask the team. Like, If you were to work in a perfect restaurant that allowed you to be everything that you wanted to be as well as had the time off, what would that look like? What would you want from that? And just allow them to speak freely. And there's a certain management of expectations, but... The answers are all there in front of us. All we have to do is be prepared to ask the questions and stand back and listen.
0: It's important to ask a question. Also, I'm very fortunate because I've got about a dozen people I've worked with before who are coming to work with me, and they've been waiting to come work with me. And two of them I actually fired. <laughs> and, they said, no. and they said, I'd rather work with you than anybody else. So I'd like to think I know what can work. And I've got people coming in now that will tell me if it's not working. So, you know to your point there. And we'll grow from there. We'll see what happens, see what we can create.
1: Good. Well, I'm looking forward to, I mean, we're I'm flying out to Canada in, in April to launch in, well, hopefully this comes out before April, to launch in Toronto. So we're launching in Canada with a crisis support service and the full suite of tools that we have. We are then looking at, at very much shortly afterwards, doing the USA. So if I ever found myself in your neighborhood, I would love to pop in and see how you're doing. And Yeah, just drink a pot of jus, please. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a martini to go with that. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, maybe. We can dabble, we can dabble. And just as a final plug, because I'm really enjoying your book. I'm getting through it slowly. I'm not the fastest of readers, and often enough, I tend to just fall asleep as soon as I hit the pillow. But your table is ready. Can you give people just a very... Just a couple of reasons why they should buy the book and have a read, because you know, I've promoted it, and I think it's fantastic, but what is it that drove you to writing that, and why should people read it?
0: I wrote the book because I've been doing this a long time. I have a lot of stories, a lot of fun stories, interesting stories, and, and people said, i have always said to me, you should write this down, you should write this down, you should write this down. So I started writing it down, and as I wrote it down, I realized it wasn't just about the stories and what drove this book. And for me, it was these incredible, crazy, sometimes insane people that I've worked with for almost 40 years and how they came together to create a restaurant and to put a a plate on the table. And I talk about these people, their personalities. I talk about the customers, the crazy customers. I think I educate people on what the process is from when we open the door to when we close the door and how to get that that piece of fish to you on the table. But it's a cast of characters that are crazy and hysterical and vibrant and full of life. And so if you work in a restaurant, you can really relate to the stories because they run the gamut you relate to the crazy customers the great customers and you'll if you're not in the business you'll understand how it works and why it works and why it doesn't work and I think you'll walk into a restaurant with a much greater appreciation. Some of the great, the fun feedback I'm getting from customers is that they said to me, I'll never look at a restaurant the same again. <laughs> I will sit there and I know what it takes for this to happen to me. I will never leave a shitty tip. I will never yell at anyone. I'll never be demanding. But I think it's, you get to see, you know, if you're a restaurant patron, how the other half lives and works and what we do to get things to you and the passion involved in that the love that people really have to giving you you know one of the most primal things in the world which is a meal it's what better thing to do than to feed someone you know giving someone nourishment that's as basic as it gets and i think my book goes into all oh, the crazy wacky wild and special reasons that we do it and how it gets to you the customer
1: love it thank you and i'm very it is a, a fun
0: insightful read and really you know pulls back the curtain on on us you know the heart and most of it's unbelievable heart unbelievable heart you know as crazy as you are my chef was about my chef was worked 14 days in a row he's not doing it for the macho reasons because he loves what he does and feels that he has to get this done so that's a huge heart maybe misplaced and you know to his own detriment but that is. Where do you find that passion in other businesses like that to that extent? It exists, but not like in restaurants. I don't think anyone really understands it or knows it unless you've really experienced it.
1: I would say that. Yeah, I mean that's why I had I had sales jobs and yet worked in busy nightclubs in the south of England in some big, really busy bars and places because it's <laughs> it's fun, right? It's it's you know you want to perfect that service, you want to give the best experience possible, and you're right you know i'm sure that you probably touch upon it but not to the same level that you do and you get bitten by hospitality wow long may it continue let's work together please do keep in touch let me know how you get on and if there's anything i can do to support then just give us a shout yeah awesome thank you good talking to you thanks thanks so much my friend speak soon